0: Escape velocity. Escape velocity. Rain. Rain.
1: Hey Derek, remember last episode when you called Jared Diamond a douchebag? I do remember that. What was that all about? I still haven't quite figured that out yet. I
2: remember because I thought he wrote like that book, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel.
1: Yeah, I thought it was pretty good.
2: Yes, yeah, so you weren't—you aren't the only person with questions about my douchebaggy. Why did people actually write it? And uh... yeah, a couple people asked about that. And you know what? I think calling him douchebaggy was probably a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. Why? A, hey, it's not a very descriptive. Term, it's very descriptive. Not really. It can be applied to such a wide array of. It's an all-encompassing, broad brush diss. Exactly. And I think for anyone who's read any of his books, they would think I can't really describe that as douchebaggy. So yeah, maybe I should take a minute to explain exactly what I what the source was of uh, misgivings right about Jerry Diamond's work. So yeah, for listeners who are unfamiliar. Jared Diamond is a geographer who's best known for. He's a geographer? I thought he was like an anthropologist. He is not an anthropologist. But that's that's sort of the gist of his writing. Isn't that's the gist of his writing, but he is actually not trained, nor does he have a degree. Really? As an anthropologist. Geographer. He's a geographer. I used to like geography. And he's best known for. They're sort of popular science books Guns, Germs, and Steel. That's his. Big Guns, book. Germs, and Spaceships. Guns, Germs, and Star Trek. Uh, no, well, I saw Star Trek last night. Was it good? Yeah, it's not bad. Okay, um, collapse, uh, and his most recent book uh, is called The World Until Yesterday. So his books are pretty fascinating. They offer some good insight into, particularly into how the power imbalances that exist in the world today, yes, uh, came to be throughout history. How do we get here from back then? Exactly. But one of the recurring themes in his work, and this is especially. Uh, prevalent in his latest book the world until yesterday is that after colonial contact Mm -hmm. traditional or tribal societies are less violent and therefore better off and he bases much of this on his time spent with traditional societies in papua new guinea right so he's come under fire for these characterizations for a couple of reasons one is that his estimates of violence in these societies pre-contact, is wildly speculative, um, inaccurate, or based on discredited studies. Hmm. And the other is that the violence perpetrated by states against the traditional people they colonize is not included in his evaluation of violence post-colonization.
1: Right. Let me stop you for a second. Yeah. I just want to dumb it down here for the, for myself.
2: Yes. What he's saying is
1: that, let's take North America. Yeah. He's saying life in North America before Europeans arrived here was more violent per capita than a society now in North America for the individual of that colonized society. Yet he is ignoring the fact that tens of millions of people were decimated by the arrival of the Europeans.
2: Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That is weird. He does. And he doesn't focus so much on like, there's other people like Steven Pinker who focused more on worldwide talking about the decline of violence and he too has that same issue where the kind of hump to get from one stage to another is kind of hand waved and you just focus on what was the daily life then what is the daily life now
1: which is weird because if if they are doing a forensic study of how we got from there to here you'd think that middle part would be important Mm -hmm. but it's not they're comparing one moment in time to another moment in time forgetting that seems to
2: be the case here with with diamond so the second aspect of not including various kinds of violence post colonization is the definition of violence so he's not including the sort of daily violence faced by colonized people afterwards such as you know the loss of their culture and language what that does to their communities uh the addictions and poverty they face that sort of thing residential exactly. schools exactly like residential schools wouldn't be in, in in Canada would not be included in that because it's not a get an axe in the back of the head kind of violence. Right.
1: To clarify again, they're saying that today in Winnipeg, uh, say if, if somebody of First Nations descent is less likely to get clubbed over the head than they were 600 years ago.
2: Yeah, you have you have less reason to be afraid of your neighbor coming and killing you and taking everything you have.
1: Right. And ignoring the fact that you have much more reason to be afraid of a state that exists, crushing your culture and decimating uh, generations of your people.
2: Yeah. So it's the Hmm. the marginalized people that are kind of left out of this. What? uh, Equation. That's unusual. Yeah. So. What a (laughs) douchebag. And in fact, Diamond has been sued uh, for defamation by New Guineans that he's written about. Uh, They claim that he fabricated tribal revenge killings and attributed it these fabricated killings to individual people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both Papuan leaders and the organization Survival International, which is an organization that speaks on behalf and defends traditional peoples worldwide, they've criticized his new book, Central Claim, that essentially traditional societies always become trapped in cycles of violence and warfare. And that in the case of New Guinea, the Guineans welcomed the Indonesian state government because it brought them peace and security. That's, you know, one of his central tenets. So pretty much this boils down to the white man's burden. Right. That colonization ultimately is to the benefit of these backwards traditional people. And that, look, we've got evidence. We have anthropological evidence to back it up. Right. So I don't think... I mean, from my reading of his work, I don't think that that's what he's driving at, Mm -hmm. that that's his goal, Mm -hmm. but it's the net effect of the thesis. Right. And he's up against voices that are deeply involved or actually part of traditional societies that are challenging the truthfulness of these claims. So it's not that I think one of his defenses is that, look, I'm just reporting what the reality is of the history. We can't censor what we say because it will be used. It could be used in negative ways. We have to speak truth to this historical fact. Hmm. Um, but that, I think that's whitewashing over the very legitimate claims by uh, some of his critics that are saying, sure, that's true, but your facts are being molded to fit your thesis and you're ignoring that which contradicts right. Right, your claims. So you can check out the show notes for links to Survival International's critique of the book. Uh, and his response if you are interested in digging a little further into that. Hey, Derek, we just received an email
1: from Jared Diamond. It reads as follows. Dear Derek, you fucking douchebag. Signed, Jared Diamond. Thank you for your consideration.
2: He's not British, is he? No. So, Chris, are you familiar with the the Media Education Foundation? You heard of these guys? Ah... Isabel I am yes they produced the peace propaganda and the promised land yes documentary that appeared on the propaganda live DVD I think you're also familiar with I remember you talking to me about their are killing us softly documentaries a while back but media depictions of women and girls oh with uh, what's her pickle uh, sexist women are not pickles I wish they were so media education foundation this is run by a guy named uh, soot Oh, I remember that name fine gentlemen they've done dozens of documentaries and it's all about how the media depicts you know race gender war uh, etc yes good stuff lots of great stuff so they have a new kickstarter campaign kickstarter for yep. a film that they are finishing up called white like me uh, I hate like me too and like me I'm more white than you I'd say white oh yeah you don't I guess you're you're 100% European purebred aren't you I'm total white guy as far as well. This film looks to synthesize the work of anti-racist activist Tim Wise. Have you heard of this guy? Oh yeah,
1: Tim Wise. Yep. Very familiar from the Zenit commentary program
2: that I am have been paying for for 15 years. And not reading. I read one every month. I actually turn the email delivery off because I would never read them and then they'd pile up and make me feel guilty. I don't know why I can't just read one every day when it comes in. Like it'd only take me 10 minutes. Yeah. They're boring. So... I recently read uh, a collection of Tim's essays. This collection is called Speaking Treason Fluently. Speaking Treason Fluently. Yeah. Huh. And uh, it kind of blew me away. It was, it was pretty intense. I mean, he, he's talking mainly about the experience of African Americans. That's, you know, kind of where he focuses. But right. uh, you could apply uh, a lot of his writing to any country where you have a dominant group. Against uh, a marginalized group. It's especially crazy in the US, though. What a f- crazy fucking history of race in that country. Mm-hmm. They had fucking slaves. It's insane. Yeah. So, yeah, they're making this documentary, uh, White Like Me, based on the work of Tim Wise. It looks really cool. They've got a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, maybe we should hear a little clip. Okay, here we go.
3: Hi, my name is Satjali. I'm the executive director of the Media Education Foundation. And right now, we're in the home stretch of finishing a film called "White Like Me," a feature documentary based on the work of anti-racist activist Tim Wise. Joining us now is Tim Wise, an educator, anti-racist advocate, it's a renowned author on uh, race issues. His name is Tim Wise. He is hands down one of the country's most well-known
0: anti-racist activists, speakers, and writers. Tim, short Tim pronounces- has written
3: one critically acclaimed book after another that looks at race and racism in America through the lens of whiteness and white privilege.
1: It's up to us to get busy. It is up to us to take responsibility, not because we are guilty, but because we are here. Thank you very much and take care.
3: And he has earned the respect of some of the most prominent African-American activists and scholars in the United States. And let me say that it is um, a real honor to share this uh, platform with Tim.
2: One of the most important things for me is understanding race and justice. And I learned a lot, even though I've written a lot, uh, by meeting Tim Wise. Uh, He really is the genius when it comes to understanding that issue. And I've never heard anybody talk as candidly about white privilege uh, and debunk it uh, in the way that he has.
3: What we're hoping to do with this film is simple. We want to take the full range of Tim's work and present it in a single compelling story that inspires people. But now look, I've been white a long time and I got to tell you that white folks in this country have long been led to believe that this is our country, that we are. The The aim of our film with Tim is to encourage people to think in new ways about an old issue.
1: We live with the legacy of inequality that began so long ago, but also the legacy of obliviousness that allows those of us in the dominant group to rarely even think about these matters. The ability to work with the folks at the Media Education Foundation who have been doing this kind of work at such a high level for such a long time is a huge honor.
2: Well, that sounds like something I'd be interested in watching. Yeah. Well, the Kickstarter campaign goes until June 20th, and they're looking to raise a total of $30,000. Did you put money in? I did. How much? 20 bucks, I think. 25 bucks. Something that got me a copy of the DVD. Oh, really? Yeah. So right now, as of this recording, they're at about $21,000. So they're getting close. So if
1: I give $9,000, I'll be a real fucking hero. Uh, If I give $9,000. You would have to
2: give it anonymously to be a real hero.
1: If I give $9,000, does that make me not racist? (laughs) Finally
2: after all these years
1: you know what i, I want to donate to maybe i will maybe yeah. i'll throw in 20 bucks too
2: yeah go see what the see what the yeah, level is or, for the dvd anyway so if you think you might want to check that out you can that was just a little clip yeah. of the trailer you can watch the full trailer there uh explanation of what they're looking to do maybe contribute and you can find a link to that in the show notes cool how do i get to the show notes go to our website at escapevelocityradio.com Oh, hey, Chris, do you by chance follow Glenn Greenwald on Twitter? Uh, I often see his uh, tweets, which contain
1: interesting information because I think you retweet him and so do the people at Citizen Radio.
2: Yes. He has been on a roll for... Well, he's been around as a journalist for many, many years. But as of late, last few months, it seems like everything he writes resonates with me Hmm. to such a high degree. He is ruthless, but rational and measured... Hmm. Um, he's recently written about... He sounds nothing like us. <laughs> he was recently talking about the brutal murder of a British soldier right. uh, in the UK, but talking about its instant labeling as a terrorist act right. and the importance of you know figuring out what that term actually means, how mm-hmm. it's applied, how it's used, how it's been politicized. He writes a lot about the Obama administration and extrajudicial killings. Right. The drone strikes, you know, controversy around that. Boston bombings, the anti-Muslim animus amongst the new atheists like Sam Harris. Right. Whole range of issues. He has a column uh, in the Guardian comment, is free section. And uh, you should check him out. So if you're on Twitter, follow him at G Greenwald. And I'll put a link to his uh, his home on the Guardian newspaper website in the show notes as well, he is a he is a man that is to be followed and learned from. Cool. You know who I follow on there? Who I think has interesting posts? Tell me, Rafi. Really? Yeah,
1: the child entertainer, the children's the, entertainer, the children's entertainer.
2: I've seen you retweet a few of his things.
1: Yeah, he's got really good stuff about media mm-hmm. and kids and technology. Mm-hmm. Is he from Winnipeg,
2: or am I making that up? No, I think he I think he lives in Vancouver. Okay, Rafi. Yeah. While we're here? What's like a hit? What's a hit kids song from this?
1: Raffy? baby beluga in the deep
0: blue sea swim so wild and you swim so free heaven above and the sea below and a little white whale on
3: the gold
1: <coughs> excuse me that was baby beluga by raffi follow raffi at. go check it out in the show notes especially if uh, you're if you are a parent and especially if you're a parent who fucking puts a tv in your kid's room or lets them play around with your fucking ipad or something
2: don't do it or alternately if you are a small child right follow rap you should not be on twitter you can sext him jesus christ (laughs) oh yeah that's the worst (laughs) that's the worst you just crossed the line
1: Derek last month we decided we would have a contest, raffle. Didn't we? raffle, a raffle. Yep. Derek, last month we decided to hold a raffle. We did. Do, we, do you hold a raffle? Conduct. Derek, last episode we decided to conduct a raffle. We did, in which the winner would receive a copy, a digital copy or a real copy? A real copy, printed oh. copy. A printed copy of Colleen Patrick Goudreau's newest book on being vegan. Correct. We did that. We asked people to write in and tell us why they deserve to win this book.
2: Yeah. Maybe deserve is the yeah. wrong word, but I guess an, an explanation of why they were interested. Right. I expected maybe four people to write in. Yeah. How many people wrote in? Uh, we got over 50 responses. Overwhelming overwhelming compared to what we expected for sure and also overwhelming was the content of those yeah. responses i expected people to just say give me the book because i want free shit yeah which, of which there were maybe one or two but this is a lot of stories of people who are expressing a you know in some cases a, a long-standing interest in veganism or vegetarianism and have, have felt incapable of making mm-hmm. the leap they they don't have the tools that they need which yeah. I think also underlines the importance of the kind of work that Colleen Patrick Goudreau does. Yeah. Because uh, like she expressed in the interview last episode, she runs up against this all the time, which is why she takes the specific approach.
1: Right. And why she has a podcast dedicated to the subject. Yeah. Rather than doing, you know, we just do one episode on it and think we're going to be done. But now that we see this feedback. Yeah. You can see why you require a series of responses.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty overwhelming. Yeah. And it also made it very difficult for us to actually choose a winner. Yeah, my preference
1: would have been to, especially for the people who are trying to transition from either eating meat or eating a little bit of meat or from a vegetarian diet to a vegan diet. Ideally, I feel like I would like to send them all a copy, but obviously that's not going to happen because we're too cheap. (laughs) But we
2: can't do that. We can't do that. So uh, we did pick one winner, but I should emphasize that it was regrettable that it was just one winner. But this is, and I think I think we agreed that this is the sentiment. This is the kind of person that we were hoping the book would go to. And the winner is, drum roll, That's Ian Knutson. That's what she said. This is what Ian had to say about his uh, desire for the book. I want to read this book because I am a meat eater currently thinking about adopting a vegan lifestyle. I'm 16 years old and coming from a family that eats meat regularly. I'm nervous about how my family and friends might react and also how to even begin to make a transition to veganism. So I think it's a perfect candidate for Colleen's book. This is kind of the target audience. For On Being Vegan. So Ian Nutzen, uh, we have probably already emailed you. And there's a book on the way in the mail. So I think that's an exciting addendum to mm-hmm. having Colleen Patrick Goudreau on the show. And mm-hmm. to the rest of the entrants, I guess, what can we do? We can encourage them to... Yeah, there was so much...
1: It seemed like people from many different walks of life.
2: Many different geographic regions.
1: Yeah, looking to, as you say, find some tools to help them transition. I don't know i find this very overwhelming actually
2: it's a good reminder i think of even people who are listeners of the podcast who we would assume you know many of whom would be familiar with sort of outside the mainstream ideas in general it's a good reminder that eating meat is one of the last thresholds that people walk over
1: yeah i would say to everybody else who wrote who gave us very good reasons as to why they should have the book too. Don't let this be the reason you don't continue (laughs) on just
2: because you didn't get the book. Yeah, we'll get some angry tweets. You know what? I was thinking about going
1: vegan. Now I'm not. fuck you guys. No, I would continue. I would check out Colleen's podcast, like start from the beginning of her podcast directory from the very beginning and go through that.
2: Yeah, because that's going to, for free, that's going to cover a lot of this same ground. And maybe it would be, for some people, it may be more accessible than a book as well.
1: And for those of you who are nowhere near making the switch right now, just consume less.
2: Yeah. Chris, do you recall a few episodes ago when we were discussing the article by writer Dave Zirin about the lockout lawyers who are destroying sports?
1: Of course I do.
2: Yeah. It was some pretty interesting stuff. Well, I've been keeping abreast... Of Dave Zirin's work, yes, and I thought it might be cool if we could bring Dave Zirin into the Escape Velocity Radio fold. Derek, I have a surprise for you. You, you finally remembered it's my birthday. Oh my god, I've been waiting so many years for you to remember. Happy birthday, Derek. Here is your present. Dave Zirin is
1: a sports correspondent for The Nation. He's also an author. His most recent book is called Game Over, How Politics Has Turned the Sports World Upside Down. He was named one of Utney Reader's 50 Visionaries Who Are Changing Our World, and Zyron is a frequent guest on MSNBC, ESPN, and Democracy Now. He also hosts his own weekly Serious XM show, Edge of Sports Radio. His other books include What's My Name, Fool? on Haymarket Books, A People's History of Sports in the United States, Bad Sports, How Owners Are Ruining the Games We Love, And with John Wesley Carlos, the John Carlos story. Dave Zirin, thank you for joining us on Escape Velocity Radio.
0: Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, Dave, my first question is essentially a cry for help. Why do I love sports so much? Why do we as a society, as a species, a species on the brink of global collapse, still obsess over sports to the point of potentially shirking our civic duties?
0: Uh, Maybe because we are a society on the verge of such a collapse, uh, because uh, in the context of what amounts for news on a daily basis, the idea of escape is not only appealing, but an essential component to maintaining our sanity on a daily basis. Now, this is not to say, of course, that some people don't go overboard, and everybody has a different idea of what it means to enjoy sports, and we could have our personal opinion about how you calibrate that on your day-to-day existence, but For many of us, it's just about maintaining. It's just about maintenance. Some people do yoga. Other people watch NBA.
1: And is that your personal story? How did you come to love sports yourself?
0: Well, I love sports because I'm one of the minority of people in this country who had a very positive experience playing youth sports. Because, you know, 70% of young people quit youth sports by the age of 13 uh, and usually, that's because of hyper-competitive parents, overbearing coaches, and just the professionalization and expense of sports. Um, I really did have the good fortune of having good coaches, subsidized sports through the local YMCA, and good friends through playing sports. So that, plus the fact that the 1980s in New York City, which is where I grew up, had some of the most compelling sports storylines of the last. 50 years. Now, maybe we only think that because it's New York and they think everything that happens in New York is the most compelling (laughs) storyline in history. But, you know, I'll put the 86 Mets, the Lawrence Taylor Giants uh, in the late 70s, of course, the Cosmos and Pele. I mean, I'll put that up against anybody. So uh, it definitely was a good experience for me from a formative perspective. And so therefore, every time I'm confronted with what's ugly about sports lurking in the back of my head, I have the very concrete, lived idea that it can be different.
1: Okay. Well, it doesn't seem like most people uh, come into conflict in terms of their value system with the sports they love. At what point did you realize there was a conflict uh, with sports in your personal value system?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't even know I had a value system until <laughs> 1991. Um, that that was when a, a very good friend of mine who's from uh, of Iranian descent, he's still one of my best friends, he uh, was protesting the the Gulf War when we were very young in high school playing basketball together. And uh, he got hurt at the protest by a police officer. And soon thereafter that, I was at a basketball game and uh, the halftime show involved somebody dressed in an Arab costume getting beat up by a mascot while everybody chanted USA, USA. Wow! And that was the first moment where It really hit me, and I don't think if my friend had been to that protest or had been hurt, if that would have even have registered or connected. I think, honestly, I I probably wouldn't have been chanting USA, USA, but I definitely would have consumed it passively, what was in front of me. So I guess that was the first moment where I felt that really sharp contradiction between the messages of sports and my own beliefs about how the world should be.
1: Ultimately, you parlayed that into a career in sports journalism. Can you briefly describe how that came about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in in 1996, there was a basketball player for the Denver Nuggets named Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who was, people might be familiar with his story or might not, but he was basically drummed out of the league after refusing to come out for the National Anthem before games. And I'll never forget watching ESPN about, Mahmoud Abdul Raouf and hearing people say, both positively and pejoratively, that he sees himself in this tradition of activist athletes like Muhammad Ali, Billie Jean King, Tommy Smith, John Carlos. Mm -hmm. and I was somebody who was raised a very hyperactive sports fan. I loved reading about sports, memorizing statistics, the whole thing. And I didn't even know there was really such a thing as activist athletes. I'd never heard that before. I didn't know the history. I, of course, knew who Muhammad Ali was, but I had no sense of the depths of what what he went through. And I started researching it and looking at it and really putting in some sweat equity and not only learning his story, but a lot of other stories that have really been hidden from sports history. And that's really how I got started is trying to apply that history to the present day and some of the present social ills and how they apply to sports. And of course, also athletes who stand on their hyper exalted brought to you by Nike platform and speak out against it.
1: And that led you to your most recent book. Your most recent book is called Game Over, How Politics Has Turned the Sports World Upside Down. What exactly do you mean by that title? And what would a sports world look like if it were right side up, so to speak?
3: Well,
0: rights are right. Let's start there. Because a right-side-up sports world is business as usual in sports. A right-side-up sports world is the sports world in the 1990s where everybody says sports and politics don't mix. Athletes just shut up and play. And of course, there is politics through sports, but it's a very one-sided kind of politics. It's the empty patriotism. It's the hyper-militarism. It's the warplanes over the games. It's the hyper-corporatism. It's... Anything that does or doesn't move, having a brand attached to it, Mm -hmm. that's business as usual in sports, and that's frankly the sports world right side up. Uh, The sports world upside down is sports the last five years, where I I think it's just gone um, haywire. I would argue beautifully haywire in some cases, in other cases horribly haywire, but either way, the sports world has been defined over the last five years by stories that just cannot be contained by the sports page on a host of different subjects, too. I mean, whether you're talking about uh, the issue of immigration in Arizona and the Major League Baseball players who um, are from the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, and are affected by this, whether you're talking about the Phoenix Suns who came out against the immigration laws in Arizona, whether you're talking about the lockouts that existed in the NHL and almost killed the whole NHL season, the NBA, the NFL the NFL referees that are all rooted in the financial crisis and the absence of public funds and corporate welfare for teams, whether you're talking about the Arab Spring in the Middle East and the role that soccer clubs played in organizing themselves in Egypt against the Mubarak dictatorship. I mean, th- these are wild stories, and they're not stories that the sports page seems either willing to handle, and it's not a s- stories that seems like the front page – Seems very conversant in handling. So, what I tried to do was write a narrative about the crisis in society and a series of essays that are meant to sort of act as a common thread to talk about all the ways in which the sports world has turned upside down. And I haven't even talked about football, concussions, rape culture, sexism, homophobia, gay athletes, all of that stuff is in the book.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about a couple of those things. As far as gender in sport, I'm not even sure where to begin on the endless continuum of examples of sexism and misogyny in sport, but if you've already taken a stab at it in your book, what's a possible action plan for the segment of our society that tends to regard women as little more than, quote, the spoils of jock culture, close quote, which was a phrase that stuck with me from one of your pieces on the Steubenville rape scandal?
0: I mean, that's a fantastic question. I mean, it's turned around, honestly, by, by a larger women's movement in society. I mean, that's one of the things that if you chart the history of women's sports in this country over the last century, the degree to which it's treated with respect is always relative to the position of women in society. And we live in a society right now that's awash in misogyny and rape culture. And you see that reflected very strongly in the world of sports, either in the treatment of female athletes, the disrespect of female athletes, Mm -hmm. the absence of coverage for female athletes. Or if the coverage is there, it's in things like Uh, you know, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue or uh, Playboy's Women of the Olympics issue, Danica Patrick and Maxim Magazine. That's where the coverage exists. Um, Or you you see it in terms of rape culture. I mean, in terms of the way women are treated and presented at male sporting events. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think cases like Steubenville, horrific cases, bring that into very sharp focus. And if nothing else, do allow for discussions about that. So that, that to me very much is a societal question that, that's much broader than the world of sports. But at the same time, as we've seen historically, that doesn't mean sports, women athletes or men who support women's sports need to just be passive players and shrug, shrug their shoulders and say, well, it's society. Because we've also seen historically the way people like Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, Cheryl Swoops, uh, now Brittany Greiner are using their position in sports to speak about these issues.
1: So you as a man actually using the term rape culture in your line of work, I can only imagine you come up against a lot of opposition from men. Uh, I'm thinking like the Joe Rogans, the celebrity sports kind of guys who dismiss and belittle feminism and deny that we live in a rape culture. How do you broach that with these guys?
0: Well, I haven't had either the opportunity uh, or the, um, uh, yeah, let's just say the opportunity to discuss these issues with Joe Rogan, um, <laughs> who I think on these issues is is honestly is a, is a pig. So, I mean, I'd be open to having a civil conversation with him. It would be hard to imagine how civil that would actually be. Um, and unfortunately, the response of a lot of men and a lot of male sports writers is silence in the face of this. Mm-hmm. I mean in a weird way it would be more healthy if more men were just speaking out their opinions on this not I was I'm not going to say if more men were like Joe Rogan I would never say that but if more men were just loud about their thoughts mm-hmm. about this because like Zerlina Maxwell said you know this is a male issue I mean the issue is not how women dress the responsibility is not on women to stop sexual assault it's about teaching men not to rape and in sports it's about cutting the connection between jock culture and rape culture Mm -hmm. because I don't think jock culture inherently has to be a culture that views women um, as commodities, that views women as the spoils of sport, that views keeping silent about the sexual assaults that may have taken place by teammates as somehow a badge of honor because you're doing it for the team. It really does not have to be that way, but we're not going to sever that connection And I I would want to make the case that I don't think this is uniform. I think it's different in different locker rooms. It's different in terms of how it's defined by coaches, parents, and other players. But if it's not being addressed openly and honestly, then it's something that's going to continue.
1: Well, let's let's shift a bit to something maybe a tad less depressing given recent events. There appears to be some recent progress in the realm of combating homophobia in sport. Tell us a bit about Jason Collins and also if there's any sign that the other three major sports leagues in the, in the United States will be following the example set by the NHL in regards to the You Can Play initiative.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is actually something to feel very hopeful and good about. I mean, I think sports is one of the chief ways in which uh, both gender and sexuality are socialized in this country. And I think what you're seeing right now in sports, because of movements outside of sports, because of Jason Collins coming out and also making a brilliant statement about why Brittany Greiner doing the same, I mean, you're, you're seeing sports attempt to unlearn over a century of homophobia and over a century of how... Uh, gender and sexuality are constructed in sports. And you know, these ideas that say that you know, being a girl is weak, being a man is strong, being gay is weak. Um, if a woman plays sports, then it must be because she's a lesbian. It's, this has been part of the DNA of sports since its very beginning because so much of how early sports was organized in the late 19th century was tied to training young men for, for empire. I mean, the age of empire and the age of organized sports at the end of the 19th century walk together hand in hand. Hmm. So when sports unlearns these archetypes, it's actually, I think, doing something very radical, very progressive and very important, and not least of which, it's going to save kids' lives. Right. I mean, and that that's the most important thing of all is, you know, the suicide rate of gay teens, the marginalization of gay teenagers, and the idea that if this can make them feel even a little bit less alone – um, that that's nothing but positive.
1: Okay, and speaking of sports unlearning some things, North American sports teams have typically been obsessed with using Native American symbology when it comes to team names or mascots, and I myself played on a hockey team in the 80s called the Nepean Raiders, whose logo was a stylized head of a man wearing traditional Native American headdress. The debate goes on about whether these teams should change their names, their logos, their mascots. In the course of researching the subject, I saw a quote from Richard Grounds, the director of the Yuki Language Project in Oklahoma, and he said, quote, there is a doubleness about these Indian names, remarking the existence of Native Americans while relegating them to the past, appearing to bestow honour on them while cloaking the destructive deeds of Euro-American society. Now, Dave, is someone who covers sports in the same city as a football team called the Redskins, is, is he right?
0: Of course, Absolutely. And it really is, I think, two separate discussions here. I'm against the use of Native American mascots in each and every case on, on, the, on a very basic principle. Like, If a genocide is a precondition to your team's name even existing, then you should probably think about changing your team's name. <laughs> very simply put, because it, it's the sad truth that if Native Americans existed percentage-wise in the numbers that they existed— when Europeans first invaded the continent, these names would simply not exist. There would be too much political weight. There would be too much numerical weight. It just wouldn't happen. It just wouldn't happen. And if it did happen, it would happen on much different, much more equitable grounds, like Notre Dame fighting Irish or what have you. You know, It wouldn't be the sort of thing, or Minnesota Vikings. It wouldn't be the sort of thing that was being done on the on the genocide of Native Americans. So that's how I feel generally about the subject. But to me, that's actually even a separate discussion, though, mm-hmm. uh, than the discussion about the Redskins. Okay. Which um, is, to me, utterly indefensible on every conceivable ground. <laughs> and its continued existence is a mark of shame on the National Football League, on the city of Washington, D.C., and on all the terrific players who've gone through that franchise over the years. It, the, the, for people who don't know, the name Redskin has roots in the scalping activities of whites when they would be sent on bounties uh, to collect scalps of Native Americans to prove their kills. Uh, that history is denied by the current ownership. They say that the name is a tribute. I think to believe that, you have to have a lobotomy beforehand. <laughs> um, and... Also, the name Redskins is strongly rooted in the fact that the first owner of the team, the man who brought the team to Washington, was a proud segregationist. Mm. Uh, The team was the last team to integrate. The team was the southernmost team in the NFL. The original fight song um, ended with the words, Fight for Old Dixie. It's since been changed to Fight for Old DC." Mm. So when they talk about treasuring the history of the name Washington Redskins, Frankly, it turns my stomach, because they never say what that history actually is, because if they did, people, I think, would be rightly uh, repulsed. Is there any
1: sort of ongoing campaign regarding the, the Redskins specifically to change their name?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's been more discussion about it over the last six months uh, than I've seen um, in the last 10 years.
1: Oh, yeah? So how clo- they- how close do you think it is to actually
0: succeeding this campaign i mean that's a very good question um i I mean i predicted on espn that it would that five years Hmm. but i also did that uh kind of just to be a little bit you know (laughs) chesty and bombastic in the face of people who are defending it but the game changer really is um the fact that the the redskins And some people, as a point of pride, don't say their name for some reason. I actually like saying their name because I like confronting people with the actuality that this is their name. Although, actually, you know, when when I'm on like radio and just talking about the team, I always say Washington Football Team. I don't say Redskins. But when I talk about it, like with you, I like saying it because it really puts it front and center what we're talking about here. Right. So the Redskins now have the most exciting player in the NFL, Robert Griffin III. Mm -hmm. Um, His jersey is the top-selling jersey in the NFL. The Redskins are relevant for the first time in two decades. I think the, the reason why the team name has been able to last for these last two decades is because the team itself has been an afterthought, an irrelevancy, not part of a national conversation. I can only imagine what it would be like if they made the Super Bowl and there were two weeks of a bored media looking for something to talk about, <laughs> especially in this age of social media. You know, the last time the team was in the Super Bowl 20 years ago, there were sit-ins led by Native American elder Vern bellancourt against mm-hmm. the name. Mm-hmm. Sit-ins in the hotel where the team was staying. It got next to no news coverage. I mean, you could find snippets. Imagine if that occurred today in the age of social media and Occupy. I mean, it would be an uproar. Right. There was a similar such event. So that's why I think the name is not long for this world. I am very, very open to the idea that I could be damn wrong. But, you know, hope I'm not.
1: One thing the four major sports leagues seem to have in common are, and correct me if I'm wrong, relatively powerful uh, labor unions for the players. Mm -hmm. It seems like unionized labor has been in decline in general in the U.S. over the past few decades. Would you agree with that?
0: Oh, my goodness. Um, Absolutely. That there's uh, an interesting lessons that I think the labor movement needs to be able to take from sports unions. I mean, there's there's a value in solidarity that sports unions have displayed over the last two decades uh, that other unions really have have not been as sharp on, frankly. And I also think that there's a competitive spirit among the players where. They don't want to be beaten by the owners. Right. And so they stick together. I mean, it's, that's what uh, one former player said to me. He said, We're, we're jocks and we really hate to lose. <laughs> and I think that that pervades it a lot of the time. And I, I think that um, one thing, well, the NFL Players Association has actually done a really good job of attempting to link their struggle with the struggles, for example, of stadium workers. Right. And it would be really nice to see the other unions try to follow suit, especially right now as the San Francisco Giants, uh, their concession workers just voted 97% to strike. And I haven't seen comment yet by the Major League Baseball Players Association, which, which really is, frankly, disconcerting to me. I'm hoping that's going to change. Um, I called them for comment, was not able to get comment.
1: That was my next question. Is it unbelievably naive to expect players not to cross a picket line? Like a concession worker strike picket line?
0: Um, no, no. I, I mean, I think actually it should be a point of principle and a point of pride. If there's a picket line at giant Stadium, the players absolutely positively should not cross it. Mm-hmm. And I think that this, this is a, the most basic principle that I think so many millions of families, frankly, are still, which is actually quite amazing. If you think about how low the unionization rates are in this country, mm-hmm. how little co- coverage labor gets in this country, Um, I still, most of the people who I know, and maybe the people who I know, it's a select sample, but seriously, even people I know who are centrist politically, even somewhat conservative politically, as a point of principle, they would not cross a picket line. They say, like, no, you just, you don't do it. And I think Major League Baseball, they're represented by an association that has terrific roots in the labor movement with the great Marvin Miller, who just passed away. And even Donald Fear, who headed the union for a long time, right. um, I think it would be a terrible decision on their part uh, for them to say, "Hey, uh, we're, we're the MLBPA, and we cross picket lines now." That would be, that would be very sad.
1: Right, because the players, to some degree, depend on the support of the public. Those same concession workers, also, who may be fans of the game, to support them during a, a labor dispute with the, with the league, right?
0: Exactly. And once again, you know, I, I went to press conferences when the NFL players were locked out t- uh, two summers ago in 2011, where the players proudly stood alongside concession workers, and they both talked how they would all be locked out, mm. low-wage workers, NFL players, uh, concession workers who work there for decades, NFL players whose playing expectancy is like three years. And so I've seen how that solidarity can work, and it works not least of which, quite frankly, because that's the background that a lot of players come from. Right. Uh, families where a parent works at a poverty level job. And so mm-hmm. there is a natural solidarity there. Now, I think it would just be a, a terrible, terrible thing to see, uh, for example, the San Francisco Giants cross that picket line if it goes through. And once again, I have, I and other reporters that I know, Um, have uh, comments, questions, queries leveled to the Major League Baseball Players Association. I think they're hanging very low right now uh, with just the the, the hope, frankly, the hope that this thing will resolve itself before they actually have to walk the line.
1: Living in Canada, growing up in the prairies here, uh, and as a fan of the greatest and most storied hockey club in world history, the Toronto Maple Leafs, Mm. I put up with a lot of pro-war pregame horseshit. Uh, The same goes for fans of every other NHL franchise these days, and I'm sure it's the same for you as someone who covers the NFL. So what is the explanation for this most egregious and maudlin intersection of sport and politics, and how do we reclaim sport back from these pro-war propagandists?
0: Okay. I mean, the the roots of, of jingoism, militarism at games, I mean, is rooted in the wars of the 20th century. I mean, it's really rooted in World War II, uh, with that's when you first start seeing it. Uh, you did see snippets as well during World War One, but it was really when World War Two morphed into you know really a permanent Cold War for decades. Followed soon thereafter, of course, by you know the war- permanent state of war in the Middle East that has made uh, that kind of jingoism and militarism a part of sports. I mean, I, I think it really is about challenging sports to change. With that, I mean, if a sport, if a sports franchise does a military appreciation night, which is pretty common in the states, mm, yeah. uh, you should have to have a peace appreciation night at the park. I'm not quite sure what that would look like, um, <laughs> but I bet it would be a hell of a lot more interesting uh, than than its uh, than its mirror image. Um, I I think that th- there needs to be. Uh, I mean, I think it really it does speak to like just the, the uses of sports. It should make us angry, mm-hmm. honestly, because what they're doing is taking something that they love, that we love. You love the maple leaves. That's awesome. But like to take that and then turn it into a kind of conduit uh, for ideas that you find offensive. I think you have the right to say something about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people with progressive values who actually stay away from live hockey so as not to endure the pregame sort of uh, rally cries and anthem and repelling down from the rafters of soldiers.
0: I'll be honest with you. I, I, I my, my approach is based really on my mood because mm-hmm. I understand that whatever I do is going to be symbolic. So I'm either in the bathroom during that part, yeah. Uh, if I'm in that kind of mood, or I'm in the turn my back to the proceedings and look at the person behind me with a nasty look yeah. kind of approach. Uh, which is always dangerous because then when you turn around again, you might feel a drop of beer on your head.
1: you ever had that
0: uh no, it's never actually happened to me. I've never actually had beer poured on my head for for doing an anti war gesture at the park, but I have had moments of some pretty serious tension,
2: yeah
1: for sure. Where I
0: then have to draw on every card like i do i mean this is stuff that I, I don't do this so I could yell back at fans, but it's just a part of my life is that i you know i have I have friends who served in these latest wars I've mm-hmm. done my own work reporting and community service at Walter Reed Hospital. Um I so if anybody says Jack boo to me, I'm just like, look, you support this stuff, look at what's actually what these wars are actually doing to families, both here and overseas. These wars based on lies. I mean, I I, I get on my high horse about it. Right. Like, don't don't tell me Jack about this because you know, you're here standing like it's nothing and I'm here not standing because it's something.
1: So who you got for the cup at this point?
0: Ooh, um I mean I live in D.C. here, and I picked the Rangers to win that series when the Caps were up two games to nothing. (laughs) Nice. Because there's something about um, a hot goaltender and that, you know, whiz popper of a coach they have in New York.
1: You still got them now that they're down three nothing?
0: Yeah. I mean, actually, hockey, when you're down three nothing, that's nothing to me. (laughs) They're down two nothing to the Capitals. People said I was insane when I said that. And that's one of the great things about hockey is that usually every year there's that one team that comes down from 3 nothing. That's why, you know what, my chips are in the middle of the table. And I picked the Rangers before the playoffs started too. And one of the things about making bets and riding a horse, I don't care if it's on, especially in hockey for goodness sakes, I don't care if it's on one leg limping across the finish line. You got to stick with that thing nice. until it's last heartbeat. So, yeah, you, you, you're damn skippy. Put me down for the Rangers. <laughs>
1: Dave, where can people learn more about the intersection of sports and politics?
0: Well, you could definitely go to my website, um, edgeofsports.com, um, and people can contact me directly, davidedgeofsports.com, if people have interest either um, in checking out one of my books. You could go to Edge of Sports also, check out my radio show, click on the audio link. Um, or if people want to know about other authors, hey, contact me. I'll tell you about a whole host of young folks out there doing this stuff and doing it right. I love it.
1: Very cool. Dave Zirin, thanks for doing what you do and thanks for
2: being with us here today.
0: Hey, thanks so much. Have a good one.
2: I like that guy. He's a nice guy. The sports world is a mirror of the rest of the society in which it exists. I don't, think, I don't think the sports world is like a driving... It's not the leading edge of either change for the positive or negative. I think it is, it's a reflection of what the undercurrents are in the society, so... Perhaps, but it it's it's such an
1: all-consuming distraction or pastime or obsession with people that, that even if it is reflecting those undercurrents, it could be a major, it could be a pivotal factor in creating a tipping point. Yeah, I can see that. Like if you were to eliminate all this pro-war shit and anthem singing garbage from sporting events, that would certainly have some sort of trickle-down effect on how belligerent and obedient... And slavish, uh, the rest of us were,
2: and, you know, AI and ratcheting down the fervor, the military fervor. And I I guess by the same token, if you see a bunch of your favorite sports players, say, come out and say, you know, by the way, I'm gay. People are so immersed in sports that in the same way that simply knowing one or two gay people in your life and realizing that they are just people like you, (laughs) um, can have that effect of like well you know maybe i'm you know they have they have interests they want to
1: perhaps more importantly or more realistically having every team in your sports league have a representative for an anti-homophobia program like the nhl does there's representatives on many teams right so it's like guys who aren't coming out as gay but they're straight athletes who are coming out saying time to cut the homophobic bullshit yeah not out of, cool out of the sport yeah so that would, that would definitely, like if I was a kid and if I was 12 or 13 and Mark Messier was, was running PSAs during hockey night in Canada against homophobia, I'd be like, what? Yeah. Something would have, that would have been a weird thing for me to hear back then. Yeah. Co- it was, cognitive
2: dissonance when your are a favorite player is up there and then they are in school yeah, and you're.
1: Our entire world back then in the early eighties was faggot this faggot that. Yeah.
2: His work is really, really fascinating, really cool. And down to earth, I was uh, happy we were able to have him on the show. Good job on that. Yeah. Sports.
0: Sports. Yeah.
1: Love him. In the spirit of last episode where we gave away a book. Raffle. We raffled. Raffle. Raffled uh, Colleen Patrick Goudreau's book. Yes. To a listener. Yes.
2: Why don't we do the same thing with uh, Dave Zirin's new book? That might be the greatest idea you've ever had or ever will have. Probably. Yeah. Okay, so what should people do? Uh, They should go to the website, same URL, escapevelocityradio.com slash raffle. Yes. And uh, give us their name, email address, and send us a little note about why they want the book. And we will send them a copy of Game Over. How Politics Has Turned the Sports World Upside Down by Dave Zirin. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to enter this one. Good luck, everybody. You're going to need it. Oh, we've been promising for a long time we'd read some feedback on the show, didn't we? We have been. We have been. And it's, it's been a while. Maybe we should get down to that. Let's do it. Yeah. Anybody phone? Nobody phoned. Kill the number? I think we'll kill the number Thanks, when it Dicks. expires. Thanks, Thanks assholes for not calling us. This first email, Chris is from Adam Werner. This is what Adam had to say. What I love about the podcast is akin to my reasons for loving propaganda. <laughs> That's your band Propagandy. Propagandy records. Each time one comes out, I get a ton of new information that makes me think gives me new issues to research. And has a healthy dose of humor, the coverage of first nations issues has been eye-opening and coincided with my reading of the book Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt by Chris Hedges, which addresses similar issues in the States. I sincerely hope you guys keep up the podcast long-term. I look forward to each new episode. Wow, thanks, Adam. Yeah, thanks. We also have an
1: email here, Derek, that came from Nick Faso. Nick writes, First of all, I think the biggest appeal about this show for me is that the two of you are not impossible moral standards, but are simply men... Debatable. Debatable. Of strong conviction. Debatable. Receiving information from someone who is seemingly 100% knowledgeable and aware about a subject can feel academic, as though reading from a textbook. I think Nick here is saying that we don't know what we're talking about. That's that's the undercurrent, yeah. Thanks, Nick. Your morality and conviction are fierce and palpable, but you're also human. It means stupid. Debatable. And have admitted flaws, both in your awareness and in your experimentation with different interests. Hmm. This keeps me from intellectualizing the entire show, which can make the process of learning seem imposing for me when I am choosing what sort of media to engage myself with in my free time. While I relish knowledge and feel satisfied with learning, the sterility and stiffness of the academic learning process makes it unpalatable if I have not the right mindset for it. The fact that you two have a sense of humor and humility, debatable, makes your podcast much more personable, ultimately. And I love hearing you guys work
2: your way through how you feel about news items or concepts. Keep it up. Thanks, Nick. He really is convinced that, that we kind of don't know what we're saying. And I think I agree. Yeah, me too. We also got an email from Paul M. Fox in the UK. This is what Paul has to say. Escape Velocity Radio is certainly the best thing that has happened to my ear holes since, well, possibly forever. I am a heavy consumer of skeptical, philosophical, and comedy podcasts. And I do not make this claim lightly. It took me four attempts to get through Dave Nickars's account of the various atrocities he has witnessed because I was simply crying too much. I say thank you to both of you. You make me want to be a better person and you have so far kept me going when I thought reasoned progress was impossible. Whoa. Yeah. Heavy. Dave Nickars made Paul Fox cry.
1: Thanks a lot, Dave. Fucking asshole. Here's another one from David Potts. Wow. Another man. David Potts wrote, "Hey there guys, I'm just finishing up listening to the latest episode of Escape Velocity Radio, and I thought I'd send some feedback after I heard Derek say that I was extremely reticent to do so. Him specifically, yeah I think you two hosts do a great job of being entertaining <laughs> That's
2: great
1: I laugh loudly and often at your performance. <laughs> Sorry. The sound editing is both sharp and sometimes hilarious as well. You also have interesting and thought-provoking guests. I also really appreciate the variance in subject matter. I haven't listened to every episode, but I've enjoyed
2: what I've heard. Signed, Chris Han... Oh, sorry, David Potts. <laughs> Thank you, David. Another complimentary email. So um, now let's get to the, uh, the critical emails. Okay, here they are. Where? <clears throat> I don't see any. This one, no, no.
1: Oh, this, no. The, don't, hmm. not that there one. don't appear to be any. If you have, if anybody has, just keep the feedback coming. Positive or negative, whatever. We'll read it. There you go. Here's a song. For episode 10 of Escape
2: Velocity Radio, the show is produced, recorded, and edited by Ted Nugent. We want your feedback. Email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or leave us a voicemail on Skype at username escapevelocityradio or by calling 701-213-4483. To join the
1: discussion about this episode or to check out the show notes, visit our website at
2: escapevelocityradio.com. If you're not already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or sign up for our email list to be notified when each new episode is available. You can also follow us on
1: Twitter, Farcebook, and Snoop Cloud. Those links and our email sign-up form can be found on our website at escapevelocityradio.com, which I said already. Bye!